Well, here we are, my friends. Episode 132 of The Cool Room. I'm your host, David Griffiths, welcoming you to our second episode with Bill Sysak from Wild Barrel Brewing in San Diego. Uh, we had a great chat in episode 131 with Bill uh, and tasted a couple of the beers from our tasting pack, which is still available from our Cool Room podcast, Shopify, which we strongly suggest you grab if you want to taste great beers and hear all about them while you listen to the podcast. If you've come to this episode without hearing the previous one, I really recommend that you pause this one and go back and listen to the previous one. Bill was supposed to be on the show for an hour, and it turned into a three- or four-hour affair, uh, which is just fantastic because he has so many great stories, so much knowledge to share. So we've turned it into two episodes, but make sure you listen to the first one first for the maximum enjoyment. And um, make sure you come and join us at Beer Deluxe uh, if you're in Melbourne at the end of May. Check out our Facebook page. We've got two great live events there with some of Melbourne's best brewers uh, associated with some awesome food uh, from the kitchens at Beer Deluxe. And also, as a little bonus, a Saturday afternoon beer cocktail session uh, down at Yarra Botanica on the, uh, on the mighty Yarra River. Um, I'm not going to interrupt things any more than that. Hopefully you've listened to the previous episode. You'll know that Warren Wu and I are sitting down and having a great yarn with Bill. And uh, let's get right on with that again right now. This beer that's before us right now, talk about things that are a real treat. I took this out of the fridge about an hour and a half ago. Uh, it's been sitting on my desk staring at me and um, I've been staring back at it. Bill, as I pour this into the glass... Can you take us on another one of those little tours, how it should look in the glass, through the aromas, sure. and then onto the flavors? Sure. Uh, so this is a, our, one of our imperial pastry stouts. Um, on the sweet side, which I'm kind of a stout purist, but I actually have learned to enjoy these over time. So this is our Hipster Sweet Dreams 11% imperial pastry stout. Pours a beautiful black opaque color with a short-lived uh, tan, creamy head that rapidly dissolves into the oils of the beer. Has Madagascar bourbon vanilla beans, Indonesian coconut, and Belgian chocolate added into it. Whenever we add anything, we never add synthetics or chemicals or any type of you know cheaper product. We always do stupid things like go, well, we can get this coconut for what would the volume we need for $800 or we can get this for $1,400. And once they tell me what it is, I'm going, oh, all right, let's just get the $1,400 stuff because it's better. So this has beautiful uh, aromas of espresso, dark chocolate, hint of coconut, little bit of vanilla wafting through. Once your palate gets acclimated, that dark chocolate turns into a milk chocolate and it coats your palate. You get this really wonderful vanilla note that comes across the mid to back palate. Coconut's there, but it's very subtle. As you're drinking this beer, as it warms up, it will come out. And then you're getting the roast malts at play. So you're getting some of that espresso notes and it's coming in. But really, because it's a sweeter pastry stout, it's really all about the chocolate. Uh, vanilla and coconut. 
I'm certainly getting some of that pastry. It's almost biscuity in parts for me as those malts come through. Uh, and that's probably a result of having the beer at a temperature where you can really start to enjoy those kinds of flavours that mm. probably wouldn't come through as much if it was, you know, straight sure. out of the fridge. You're actually absolutely right, David. It's uh, it's really all about all about those aromatics coming to coming out of your glass, right? So proper glassware, but also proper temperature. I mean, unless you're drinking, uh, you know, a Foster's or something, you, there's a reason why they serve them at 33, 34 degrees, right? Or the Bud Miller curves where they have the, the frozen faucets and stuff like that, because they don't want you to taste it when it's warm. But what we do is we serve our beers at about 38 degrees. They come through by the time they come through the shank, the faucet, into your glass, believe it or not, they're already... 41, 42 by the time they hit the bar. And if you got a pint as you're enjoying it over a few minutes, you're already hitting 50. And that's, for example, a perfect temperature for an IPA or an Imperial Stout. And it'll just bring out so many aromatics. This cellar you see, this fancy cellar, which is my garage, but it looks really bitching when you're in here because you're like looking at all these amazing bottles, like all my yeah. Lambics are over here and all these things. It's it ranges 62 to 70 degrees. Yep. And that's high. I'm, you know, I have a red wine cellar at an offsite place that has my wines, you know, 55, 58. But it's really, when it comes to aging beer or keeping beer, it's really, it's a lot more resilient. I heard you guys talking before I came on, uh, before I, I clicked on when I was just listening about mm-hmm. how, um, you know, you could put something in the fridge from the night before and it'd still be good. Um, an open can, things like that. Uh, craft brewers always want everything to be at their best, but you can really have a lot of resiliency when it comes to craft beer. And as long as you're not having three things happen, which is severe oxidation, which with some beers, it's better like a barley wine because it brings out mm. caramel and toffee notes over time. I have some 40, 50 year old beers and some 20 year old barley wines and stuff that are just amazing. Um, But also uh, ultraviolet light can be an issue and then extreme temperature changes. That's Mm -hmm. where it's really an issue. Look, 97% of all beers should be consumed perfectly fresh whenever possible because it's Mm -hmm. made to be that way and it should be refrigerated and served and, and consumed. But the beers, which obviously there are thousands and thousands now that are made for aging, um, these things can hold up and you can do it at a higher temperature. I spent most of the 80s figuring out the right humidities and temperatures. You'd come over to my house in Orange County and you'd go in my guest bathroom and you'd open up the sink underneath the sink and you'd see some of the rarest lambics in the world. You go into my garage and open a cabinet, there'd be something else. You'd go under the crawl space of my house. I'd have other things. And I spent years figuring out what's the right temperature range. And I'd have beer, the same beer in different areas. And I try them at six months, a year, two years and see Mm. what they were. And what I really found out, the only difference about aging your beer at 55 versus 70 is as long as it stays stable is it just ages faster. So Mm. as long as you're aware what it's going to do and you stay on top of your beers and don't do them because all your beers are like a bell curve. They all go, they change, change until at a certain point, you're like, oh, it's not as good as the last time I had it. That's mm-hmm. when you invite everybody over and you have the last six bottles of that, right? 
So you do it. So what I always tell people when it comes to aging, and sorry, I've segued once again out of the original question, is if you buy a beer, say a great imperial stout, and you buy it and you have it and you love the way it tastes right there, drink the whole case. Even if Mm. you're planning on selling it, just drink the whole case because it's not going to get, it's going to change from the way you're having it now. And if you don't want to get it where it's more triacly, licorice where it's Venice, or even it picks up soy sauce with some stouts later on mm-hmm. and has different age components that go on, then, then have it as it is. But if it's fusely and hot from the alcohol and you want to mellow it out, then it's a perfect subject for aging. So I always say start with the less expensive beer that has higher alcohol and is appropriate for aging. Get a case, try one fresh. And then if you're willing to age it, just try one every three months and see where it is. And, and you kind of get a feel for that kind of thing. Uh, I've got to ask, with the collection the size of yours, are you one of those amazing people who can keep all of those beers in your head? Or do you actually have like a computer program that actually allows you to know, oh, I'd forgotten I had those five things tucked away at the back, but now is the time I should be drinking them? Are you kidding me? I'm a baby boomer. I don't. I worked in the medical field. That's how I got my nickname, Dr. Bill, right? I was a medic in the army. And then I uh, worked in the medical field for a long time, but not as a doctor. <laughs> that's mm. why when you see that, you'll see it in quotes. Um, it's just a nickname that I've had. And that's another story. Um, no, I just know, I just know what I have and, and everything I have. And I'm just very aware of it. And believe it or not, I'm rotating pre-pandemic, especially for the last 25 years. I'm rotating probably a thousand bottles a year out of here, but I'm constantly getting more. I'm constantly being given more. Right. Mm. So it's, it's constantly stays at this pretty high level, right in the 2,500 to 4,000 range. And it's usually about 3000. But so what I always do is as I'm going, you know, I would have historically three or four parties at my house where I would share pull 300 bottles out, not that they were going bad, but just 300 bottles of what everybody wanted to do. And then ultimately 30 people would end up in this garage and we'd start opening really, really, really rare stuff at the end of the night (laughs) after drinking for like six hours. And then I would go to the great American beer festival where it has, you know, seven, you know, 4,000 beers in this hall and four sessions where I'd be tasting and I'd be going to all these great beer bars but they would let me have a Dr. Bill tasting where I'd take part of their basement and I'd ship 300 bottles of beer there. And of course, if you guys do this, here's a pro tip. Always buy a lot of the beer from the place that's letting you have a bottle share or sharing the beer. Mm -hmm. Always buy beer from there. You need the publican to be able to make money. And if they, they always had this, For example, I used to do the Falling Rock, which is no longer open in Denver. And and Chris Black would let me have these insane parties where I'd have 150 people show up, have a tip jar just so I can uh, defer a little bit of my cost. But I'd always buy, you know, $500, $1,000 worth of beer. And then I'd always tip the person. They always had this guy named Paul who liked to work my parties. And I'd always make sure he got like all the tips, $500 in tips for mm. working there. And then at the end of the end of GABF, when I was leaving, there'd always be like an insider's party at the falling rock. And I would always make sure and, and slip a few hundred dollars to Chris for the rest of the team. Right. And mm. it's all about 
just doing that. And it's what you can afford, right? It's not, it's not that you have to do huge amounts of money, but if you're going to ask a place that makes its living selling alcohol to allow you to bring in beer and share it with your friends, you need to pay that corkage fee. And whether it's mm-hmm. just bringing a bottle for somebody's birthday or whether it's having a party and getting a back room and everybody bringing a hundred bottles and doing it, you got to remember, spend money there and support that establishment. And, mm-hmm. and one, they'll have you back to, it's just the right thing to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So I rotate through all of it through multiple parties every year. So it's been rough the last two years because not, not having a lot of people over with the pandemic. Right. So I'm sending a lot of, a lot of Christmas and birthday presents are, are a case of a mixed case of beer that somebody got for their birthday or for the holidays. Oh, it sounds terrible. It sounds <laughs> terrible, Bill. <laughs> a mixed case of beautiful beers. Just, oh, yeah, terrible. <laughs> that we've try. Sort of got well out of order with all of our questions, but, but Bill, I've got to ask, given we were talking food pairings, what kinds of things would you pair with a beer like this? Mm. And, you know, if you could, if you could drink this, anywhere, anytime, like literally almost anywhere, you know, in, in history, you know, where would be your ideal place to, to sit and enjoy this beer? I can think of a few places. One of the places is with a bunch of good mates where you're talking beer and having a great time. So cheers, everybody. Absolutely. That's cheers. always a perfect occasion. Uh, I would probably open this in you know, because it gets cold in San Diego at night. It gets like 60 degrees. So uh, not really, obviously, but I would have a fire pit. I'd smoke a Padron and I'd sit there and open bottles like this and enjoy them uh, mm-hmm. to do that. As far as pairings, I would have this. Let's start with cheeses. This with blue cheese is heaven. Heaven. I used to do this uh, cheese cor- cheese dinner called black and blue. It was all black beers. It wasn't all stouts, but it was all black beers and blue cheeses. So I'd have this with some Colson Bassett Stilton, which would be amazing. I would have this when you start getting into savory things, it gets tricky because this is big and it's semi-sweet. So you have to be careful what you're having with, I would have this with some great lamb, uh, Mm -hmm. would be, would be delicious. I would have this with a nice, uh, cocoa rubbed elk, Loin um, would be fabulous. Something gamey, right? That's why mm. I picked the lamb, maybe even mutton to, to do it. Uh, I would have this um, with Kansas City barbecue. So you're not you're not in America, but different barbe- mm. different states have different types of barbecue. Mm. Kansas City is known for their kind of red sauce. It's a red sauce, so it has a nice acidity. So if you're picturing a red sauce, this would go really well with cutting through that red sauce. It would actually go pretty well with the bolognese sauce too. And then, I mean, look, it's the simplest answer in the world. This with any type of chocolate or coffee dessert, uh, Mm -hmm. anything from tiramisu to just a chocolate lava cake to your favorite candy bar from the corner convenience store. This is going to go amazingly well with that. If I've got to say, bourbon, I was almost, yeah, I was sort of thinking like, you know, a nice Chinese pork with a bit of five spice and some of those sort of things just to sort oh, of bring yeah. out, you know. Oh, sure. If you had cinnamon, it's always been a challenge for me here 
in America, because you can have all kinds of sweet pastries, right? You can have cinnamon rolls and stuff. I always have to explain to Americans that most of the world thinks of cinnamon as a savory spice and mm. that it gets mm. hot. Uh, and they go, oh, yeah, cinnamon red hots. But they're all so used to having cinnamon rolls where it has this vanilla icing on it mm-hmm. and cinnamon oh. and it's a gooey sticky bun. So they don't even realize that that's so you're right. A, a good five spice, something ethnic, a good uh, hot pot would be mm. pretty tasty with it too. So yeah, the beer is very versatile. You could always, uh, when I used to do a lot of articles and things like that, I'd always have like a good 20 items with every single beer so that you could, you could really uh, go see what grabs you, right? And see, it might be not the dessert or the cheese. It might be the hot pot or it might be the the lamb loin, right? Something mm. like that. Yeah. There's some wonderful suggestions there. And all I'm doing now is getting hungrier and hungrier by the moment. So, of course. We, we perhaps didn't explore your journey. Well, I guess we've touched on it a couple of times, but, you know, despite the fact that you've been in the industry and doing those tastings since the 1970s, and I've got to say to everyone who's listening to the podcast rather than looking on Zoom, um, you are a great advertisement, my friend, for what 50 years of drinking can do for a man. Because you, if, you're, if you were doing tastings in the 1970s, even as a very young man, you are, you're in very good nick. You're looking fine there. Uh, tell us how... See, when you're fat, it, it, you don't see the wrinkles that rounds it out. And... <laughs> My third liver is telling me to remember to tell you about milk thistle, which is really, really, really good for that. So I take uh, 3000 milligrams of milk thistle daily for the last 25 years. So do you want to hear about how I got into beer? Absolutely. Yeah, but and, and, and then we can all go away and Google milk thistle, can I say? So yeah. uh, 15, I was 15 years old. I, I grew up in a uh, county called Orange County, which is this big suburban county. Uh, about the size of San Diego County, right below LA and Los Angeles. Uh, Disneyland, for example, if you know where Disneyland is, that's in a city called Anaheim. I I grew up in a city called Garden Grove, which is right next to it, uh, about three, four miles from Disneyland. And we're sitting in my parents' backyard, my best friend from across the street. We were 15 years old. We were making a Lohenbrau tree. Now, it wasn't good. German Lohenbrau, it wasn't good Swiss Lohenbrau, it was bad Stroh's Lohenbrau, that was uh, the, the silver foil, so it was the lighter version, think of a Bex or, or a Heineken, and basically my mom had all these fruit trees, and uh, we were basically sticking the empty bottles on the branches, right, my mom was out of town visiting her sister uh, back east, as we say, which would be the east coast, and my dad was in a uh, had a member was a member of a group called the Knights of Columbus. Knights of Columbus would be like an Elks or a Shriners. I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys are familiar with any of those. They're like men's organizations. Hmm. Uh, Knights of Columbus was a Catholic organization, right? So they they did this whole thing. It was like kind of like uh, a, a meeting place for them. And on Fridays, uh, being good Catholics, on Fridays they would have fish fries because it was Lenten during Lent. And they'd always serve fish fries. And then they would drink and play poker uh, because they could. And so we were sitting in the back. Uh, I'm not saying we were just drinking. We may have been smoking something. And my dad 
and his best friend came home because my dad forgot to get his scotch from his bar. He had a nice little bar in our family room. And uh, his best friend <laughs> was the dad of my friend. They lived right across the street. And so they heard us in the back. They came and found us. This was 1977, late 1977. Like I said, I was 15 years old. Uh, my older sister, I have three older sisters. One of my older sisters got us a case of beer and uh, they busted us. Right. And back then corporal punishment was a thing, right? It's not mm-hmm. PC now I know, but he could have easily took his belt off and chased me around the, the, the backyard and, and gave it to me. But instead he, he offered us a deal and it was because two things had happened in his life. And so what he offered us was to teach us about good beer. And I think it was more to show off to his friend, Bob, my buddy's dad's, my buddy's dad. But what had happened, he had been in World War II. And if you ever saw, say, Saving Private Ryan, for example, um, he was in an engineer battalion that landed in Omaha Beach on D-Day. And while they were waiting to land at Omaha Beach, he was in England and he discovered English ales and Mm -hmm. Scotch whiskey because they were stuck there for three months and they get leave every once in a while. And he tried English ales. And then once they landed in Omaha beach, they followed Patton around all the way through till they got to Germany. And one of the things they used to do, especially when they were in Germany and taking over these towns and villages that were uh, previously controlled by the Germans, they'd find the, the gas house or the bar or the brewery mm-hmm. and all the enlisted troops would go down in the cellar because there would be these big barrels of beer and they'd go in and tap it because, you know, worse hell, as you guys, anybody who's been mm-hmm. in the military, I was, could imagine. And <laughs> they'd literally break into these barrels and get start pounding beers uh, as much as they could until the MPs, the military police and the officers would come and say, hey, hey, stop drinking. We need you to go and take the next town before we stop for the day. And so he discovered, amazingly enough, through this precarious involvement he had, with the rest of the enlisted soldiers, he was a sergeant in the army. He discovered uh, German lagers mm-hmm. and he drank German lagers. So he discovered these beers. He came back to his hometown in New York and went back to drinking fizzy yellow beer, as we like to call it at Stone, uh, you know, macro beers and forgot about it. But he could still find scotch. So he was drinking scotch. And then just before he busted us, two weeks before, there was a liquor store chain that opened in Orange County called the Liquor Barn. And it was kind of like what we would call a Bevmo or a Costco here, where it was just all liquor. These mm-hmm. big, giant uh, establishments that had rows and rows of all kinds of different categories. You had a tequila row, a gin row, everything like that. And he walked down this row looking for the scotch, and he went through this imported beer aisle. And this imported beer aisle, he goes... Oh, Watney's Red Barrel. I know Watney's Red Barrel. I remember that. And he saw Spotten and Polliner from Germany. And he Mm. goes, I remember those beers. I remember seeing those beers. And so just before he busted us, he had seen those. And I think he wanted to revisit them. He never owned up to it. He's no longer alive, unfortunately, but he never owned up to it. And what happened was he said he'd teach us about good beer as long as we didn't drink and drive. Of course, it was the 70s in California, so... I I can't promise that that happened back then, but every weekend on a Friday and Saturday, we'd buy two to three six packs, mixed six packs of beer from around the world. Mm -hmm. And 
we just started alphabetically and we just started tasting them. And we had, I had, uh, one of my sisters was married. They all lived close by. Both of them had boyfriends. We had Bob McClatcher, the neighbor from next door that caught us. And although he didn't let his son come over, who was 15 also, his son never got to partake of these. And so from the time I was 15 to the time I was 18, we tried 3,000 bottles of beer from around the world. Wow. And those 3,000 bottles of beer were literally in a room in my parents' house that had shelves. My dad was probably more proud of it than I was. All empty. And most of them were macro beers from Ethiopia or whatever, because there wasn't a lot of craft beers that route. But mm-hmm. there were German lagers. There were different things. We had a gentleman who would come and visit us, who was a wine drinker, who lived in our neighborhood, who was part of NATO. And so he went to Belgium and he brought me like Rodenbach, little Rodenbach bottles, little oh, little right. uh, stubby Rodenbach bottles and other Trappist beers like Chimay and stuff like that. So it's 78. I'm one of the, I'm 15, 16 years old. I'm one of the earliest people to drink Belgian beer who hadn't gone to Belgian beer in America, right? And we're bringing mm-hmm. stuff. We had another gentleman who used to buy wine in Sonoma County he found new Albion bottles, which were these big flip top 500 ml bottles that were uh, new Albion was the first true craft brewery, brewery in America after if anchor anchor steam or anchor brewing when Fritz Maytag started the craft beer revolution. And then just before Sierra Nevada opened new Albion opened and they were open for five years. They're in an old tire warehouse with dairy equipment in Sonoma County, which is a wine County Think of it like uh, uh, McLarenville kind of thing uh, or Barossa, right? Mm. Kind of in that like area for you guys. Mm. And um, so I got to try like the very first microbrewery and I got to try Anchor Steam and I got to try Belgians. And so I tried these 3000 different beers from around the world. And most of them were just, like I said, lagers from everywhere. So that's when I first tried Australian beers. I tried a lot of your guys' macro stuff. So I tried like uh, Kent Brewing, right? Which is KB, the big oil can, the Fosters. I tried Tui. I tried Tooth. I tried Tooth Sheaf Stout when it was still Sheaf Stout, which is a legendary beer under Michael Jackson. Because in 78, Michael Jackson wrote The World's Guide to Beer. And he was the mm. first person to take styles and actually say, there are beer styles from around the world and categorize them. So I, my dad got me that book in 1978 and I started reading it and I was like, oh, wow, there's all these different styles. So I tried Cooper, Cooper's sparkling ale, right? I yeah. tried special export. And then later on in my journey, I tried, um, what's his name? Uh, Philip Sexton. Do you guys know yeah. who Philip Sexton yeah. is? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, he was one of Little your Gregor. first. Yeah. Oh no, yeah. it would have been, no, you would have been, uh, Sale and Anchor, right? And so I tried stuff like uh, Red Tape and Brass Monkey Stout. I know Mm -hmm. you guys have redone Brass Monkey Stout because somebody said they were going to send it. But I tried early stuff of Philip's section, who supposedly is one of the Matilda Bay, that's the one. Uh, Oh, Matilda Bay, yes. Yeah. Matilda Bay. And so I I tried a lot of great Australian beer there. And then, you know, somebody figured out that I probably had like, this was 10 years ago that I probably had over 55,000 different beers. Now, wow. obviously, I didn't drink every, every ounce of every beer, but trust me, I drank a lot of repeaters, so I made up for it. Uh, but that's tasting, right? I used to go to the Great American Beer Festival, and they'd serve an ounce of beer 
And for four sessions, I try 400 beers, right? Broken up mm. over all these hours. And so that all adds up. So they figured, well, you, you easily with that and all these tastings and going to the Great British Beer Festival and mm-hmm. Oktoberfest and traveling all around. I lived in Germany because I traveled where I wanted to be around great beer and stuff. I, I had had all, all these different beers from everywhere and tried them. So, uh, oh, I wanted to say before I forget, another really cool beer that I had just recently, a couple just before the pandemic, was uh which tripped me out when they brought me the bottle because it's I, I never knew there was a Boston brewing company in Australia. <coughs> Are you I'm familiar sure with that? that place? I knew that either, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> there's a place. And so they had a a, a cherry porter stout huh. that I had. Look them up. There's a place called I'm- Boston Brewing Company. And it's a it's a Western Australia brewery. You're absolutely and, right. I'm uh, looking it up now. <laughs> yeah. and, and so I, I I was like, what? They, this this Boston place? I thought it was in Massachusetts. And they go, no, no, no this is <laughs> this is Aussie beer. So uh, I tried that. So, anyways, yeah. So that's how that started. I'll I'll do a little segue so I can kill two birds with one stone. Uh, my first beer and food pairing. What got me passionate about beer and food? It was it was 1980. We were, we were still doing tastings. Uh, it was right the year I was graduating from high school. And Anchor Brewing did a barley wine called Old Foghorn. They still do it. And they were in little seven-ounce nip bottles. And we'd just gotten them. And it was a Saturday morning. And I was starving. So what did I do? I went and made myself a peanut butter and jam sandwich. It was probably jelly back then, as we talked about jelly mm-hmm. being a cheaper form of jam in America. Uh, and, and wonder bread and, you know, not, not artisanal, like I'd eat now, but I made it and I grabbed the milk jug and it was empty out of the fridge. And so I go, Oh, well, all right, I'll just have some beer with it or whatever. So I came and sat down and took a bite of my sandwich. Of course, peanut butter, you know, I needed to drink something. So they just poured the old foghorn, which is this English style barley wine, caramel, toffee, orange marmalade, uh, just amazing. And, I, I wash it down with this and this light bulb went off over my head and I'm like, Oh my God, this is amazing. The crust from the bed, the bread, the peanut butter, the uh, strawberry, it was strawberry jelly for sure, because I didn't like grape. Um, and that's only two kinds we had. And so I made everybody eat my janky peanut butter and jelly sandwich and try it with the beer. And from that point on, I was like, this is amazing. And then I spent the next 10 years traveling around the world, going in the military and trying everything. I was literally this guy that was walking around trying different types of wood. Oh, this is cedar, putting it in my mouth and trying it. Oh, this is a sedimentary rock. Oh, let me try it. Trying, oh, what kind of leaf is this? Oh, eucalyptus. Let me, let me put that eucalyptus leaf in my mouth. Shouldn't have, but I did. Um, anyways, so I literally went around trying all these things so I can do it. It's just like cedar is a perfect example, right? Mm. How many of you ever had cedar in your mouth? Probably very few of you. But if I, we had a beer with cedar in front of us right now, and one of us said, oh, I smell cedar, you would get it or taste cedar. You would get it because you've been around cedar forests. You've been around cedar planks. You've been around patio furniture or cigar humidors or cigar boxes mm. or your sister's hope chest, right? 
uh, things like that. And you've smelled cedar before, so you would get it. And that's the power of the olfactory gland and the sense of smell. Mm-hmm. So anyways, sorry, got off on a tangent again. <laughs> well, let me take a tangent because it give, this gives me the ideal opportunity to plug my new favorite podcast, which I never thought I'd get the opportunity to do. So there's a new podcast called Completely Arbitory. A-R-B-U-R. So who it's and each episode they do a different tree and spend an hour and a half to two hours talking about an individual kind of tree. So if you're into tree podcasts, can I say I'm loving that podcast? So go out there and, and listen to that. Um in your journey, Bill, I wanted to I wanted to ask a question, which is really why I cut in there. Um before we move too far, far past your experience in Belgium. Uh, which, again, you're talking about being at some of the first American craft breweries and microbreweries, but were there any breweries over in Belgium or even perhaps more importantly styles that you saw when you were over in Belgium that have been lost as the craft beer movement has changed and move on? Are there, are there things that you miss drinking from that time? Um, oh, by the, by the way, uh, James, you're absolutely right. Mole would be fabulous with the stout. Mm. For sure. Um, uh, I haven't seen too many things lost. Uh, I was very concerned about Belgian Lambics. The first time I went over there, Frank Bone hadn't started up his uh, blendery yet. Uh, Cantillon was really hadn't have hit it, hit its stride with uh, Jean, Jean Pierre's father. Um, Armand de Belder wasn't really doing much. Uh, a lot of the Lambics had started to become sweeter. Uh, things like uh, Mort Sabit, who was a blendery. Uh, great name, by the way, Sudden Death. Uh, Bellevue. Uh, Lindemans, right? Lindemans is mm. all over the world, and they're known for doing... They do have traditional... If it says oud or traditional, it's done the right way, which means they haven't added anything. But all, all, all those uh, LPR drinks, we called them back in my day, which is not PC now, so I won't tell you what LPR means. I don't know what the hell. Liquid panty remover drinks would mm. be um, the Lindemann's drinks, right? The, the so that's Pesh more the ginger and the, and the yeah, yeah, the Crick. Um, those, those all have food coloring. They have glu- uh, uh, sucrose and fructose and, and all kinds of things added to them. Uh, not that our beers, our vices aren't sweet, but at least it's all real fruit. So I was really worried about the Lambics. And then about the first time I went was in 82. And then I went back again, about the fifth time I was going through, I was discovering all the Trappist monasteries. And I, by then I was uh, trying to see Michael Jackson whenever possible in England. And he had read, you know, I had had his books that talked about all the Belgian beers and remember the in Belgium, just like in Australia, just like in the United States, 90, 80 to 90% of all the people in Belgium with all those fabulous beers drink fizzy yellow beer in every country in the world, including the United States, 80 to 90% of the population drinks fizzy yellow beer. That's the people that even drink, which in America, only 68% of the population drinks. And then you got wine drinkers, cocktail drinkers, things like that. So it's a small percentage of mm. crap. And it was the same way in Belgium. Belgium was surviving by exporting beer, by sending beer out to other countries. Uh, Cantillon for a long time, their biggest uh, 
sales places were not Belgium. They were Italy and the United States and Canada and places like that. <laughs> so I was worried about Belgian Lambics. But then I was in Cantillon one day and I was like looking around and I was getting a, a tour and it looked pretty janky. It looked like there were all the spider webs. Everything was dusty and dirty. They took me by the cool ship, the big open fermentation vessel. And I'm thinking, God, there goes a rat, you know, and already Cantillon's not in the best neighborhood, right? I remember falling. Well, I tripped. And uh, when I was walking on the cobblestones outside of it, and my pants were black from the carbon that had built up because it was in a bad part of town. It was just all dirty and nasty on the street. And I'm like, God, you should clean this up. And that's when uh, uh, Jean-Pierre was telling me, no, 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 this is the, this is how all the wild yeast lives. It lives in the spider webs. It lives in the yeast, the leaves. It lives in the, uh, yeah, rat poop and all, all that stuff. And he's like, that's what makes this, these beers so amazing is the pediococcus and the lactobacillus and the, you know, uh, acetobacter and the Britannomyces and all these great ingredients. So then I knew that there were still lambic producers out there that were doing a great job. Um, Guden Karaloos Het Anker was an early Belgian brewery that had I'd really seen going downhill in the late 70s, early, well, early 80s when I first discovered them. But then the cousin bought it and, and started making the beers again. And they do Cuvée de Vandekaiser and these kind of Abbey style ales. And I was worried about these Abbey beers. And that's when the Trappist started to have their official mark on beers to do it. So I really have to say, and I could have made this shorter, I apologize, um, that the Belgians are doing a good job staying strong. They're actually going very slowly with the new craft breweries that are there. And they are much more of a traditionalist than, say, uh, our countries or other countries as far as uh, styles, because America didn't have a tradition after after Prohibition. I mean, we had fizzy yellow beer. We went from 3,000 breweries before Prohibition to uh, 740 right after Prohibition to 85 breweries by the time just before I discovered beer in the early 70s. And so we didn't have a tradition of beer, but the Belgians always had a tradition of beer and they've kept mm. it. Even though of the 300 Belgian breweries, 180 of them just brew like three styles. They brew an ambery or an amber, a pale and a dark, right? But you have all the great Trappist and Abbey Ales. You have all the great uh, Saison producers like, uh, you know, DuPont or Fantôme. And you have the Lambic producers and the other sour producers. So I think they're all staying strong. And it's all because of people like us who buy their beers when they come to our countries. We're going to do a couple of audience questions soon. But one sure. question that we always ask, uh, even though it doesn't always necessarily translate as well uh, to the U.S., uh, is about the strangest thing you've seen in a cool room or in a brewery or a beer cellar. You know, part of the reason why we're called the cool room is because Warren and I have both run pubs and venues. And really, at the end of the day, it's always in those sort of spaces out the back that the best stories happen. And we mm. like to pull the curtain back a little bit and share what life in those spaces is like. Um, you know, have you got any stories of strange things you've seen in the last, you know, 50 odd years of hanging around some of these awesome places? Yeah, 
Um, I knew this was coming because I knew I saw that you'd asked uh, the gentleman from uh, the other San Diego brewery, uh, which I like their beers. So can you tell me I, I, I'm spacing on what they're called? Uh, emboldened? Yeah, emboldened. That's right. So I, I don't want to make it sound like the other brewery that I'm not going to name. No, <laughs> emboldened is doing some good stuff. So, uh, yeah, I'm not going to say the name of the brewery. No, that's even better. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> but there was a brewery that had a very large cold box. So back when craft breweries only opened one a month in the country or, or like that, instead mm-hmm. of one every day or three every day, which is what the rate is now. I used to travel around the country to go to these places. I go, oh, because there was Celebrator Beer News and places like that, pre even pre-internet where it would talk about these are the new breweries that are opening west of the, you know, this half of the country. And I would make it a point to travel there. And so I went to this large brewery that had started in the eighties. This was 92, 93. And they were known, not really known, but they had a large kind of, the kind of cool room that, you know, can house thousands of pallets or hundreds of pallets and they used to have a, uh, they used to park their truck that they used to take the beer festivals there, right? And, uh, you know, it was all done up with their logo and everything and had a little draft system off to the side of the thing. And uh, a friend of mine who was the, one of the owners was taking me back there because he had a special stash of beer back in the corner kind of thing that, uh, you know, under in a cage that, you know, he wanted to taste me on some of those things. And we walked by and I'm going, and it was early. I was like, I was getting, I just flown in. I, I always like to fly into beer festivals and things. It's like first thing in the morning, like seven o'clock. So I could start my liver off. Right. You know, so I like to get there early and then leave late. And I'm like looking at the truck and I'm going, Oh, that's, I, oh. and there were, apparently there were brewers, because there was a female and a male, stark naked, excepting for their brew boots, passed out in the back of the truck. And they had blankets, but they seemed to not need them. I don't know why, because it was pretty friggin' cold. But, I, you know, they were breathing, so I didn't, like, check their pulse or anything. But uh, didn't say anything to the owner, because he didn't look. He was, like, 10, 10 feet beyond me. But I, I was like, oh, okay, all right. That's an eye-opener. <laughs> And uh, just went about our business. We grabbed some <laughs> bottles and uh, went out. And I don't know whatever happened with them, if, there's, if they were still working there the next day. But he didn't say anything, and then neither did I. So that was it something might, I saw. It, it, it might be like, you know, those in, in 10,000 years' time, you know, anthropologists will, you know, come back and try and figure out what was, you know, what was happening that day. Exactly. Um, uh, we, We've got a few audience questions. Mr. Warren Wu, did you have any questions before we start the throw to the audience? No, I think we've covered an amazing amount of ground there. I don't think I could add anything else to the, the skill. You've been so Shannon had a time. So it's it's been fantastic. Shannon, would you like to unmute and uh, and ask your question? And everyone else in the room, feel free to type your questions and we'll throw to you so that everyone can get to pick. Bill's brain a little bit. It's not often you get, in fact, I don't think we've ever had an opportunity quite like this one before. 
Thanks, David. Um, and Bill, thank you so much for everything that you've given today. Like, just some of the information has just been incredible. I'm not sure that um, in the cool rooms history, there's probably been someone that was so willing to share so much. And um, and I know you were critical of yourself with what you wanted to give away earlier, but your cool room audience generally was going to appreciate every single thing that you've said mm. today. Um, so it's, to my question, we, we spoke about it there before the... <coughs> I started recording today about the amazing background of um, cellared beers that you have there that I'm sure a lot of people will recognise some of those. Um, I'm interested because you mentioned that you had 3,000 cellared beers where that just blew me away. Um, what is it that you're most looking forward to drinking that you actually have in storage somewhere? Ah, that's a good question. So I know it's past its prime, but I had mentioned Bellevue as having some pretty weak uh, lambics uh, early on, but they did a beer that was a special one called Bellevue Selection Lambique from 1998. And it's not even that old, but I have one 750 ml bottle of it left. And I know it's past its prime because I tried one that somebody else had, but I can't bring myself to open it. I, I used to have these, parties called Dr. Bill's birthday, Belgian barbecue, barley wine bash. That were these 12 hour parties. And I kind of alluded to them before where I'd invite like 140 people over. I'd, I'd, I'd buy a case. I had two columns. I had all Belgian ales and I had all beers around the world that were a percent or stronger. And the, the, the thing was on the beer menu is, you, it started at 11 and ended at 11. And every 10 minutes, I opened a bottle of each, right? Or bottles of each, as many as I needed for the people. And so I used to do these great scores. And if I think about it now, about some of the beers that I opened and just opened for years, I did it for 10 years running. And, and some of these beers are like literally going for $2,500 a bottle now. And I was like, yeah, I opened a case of that beer three three years in a row. <laughs> I'm like, gosh, I could use that right now. Um but um, that was a beer that I had a lot of, that I had picked up a lot of. I, there was a South African wine distributor, uh, and I was hanging out at a, a buddy of mine's uh, liquor store, which was a huge one-stop shopping liquor store where it had cigars and cheeses and wines and spirits and all kinds of, even pre-prohibition bottles and stuff like that, and all kinds of great beer. And he got a call from this wine South African wine distributor, and he said, this was 1999, and he he called and said, I've got all this out-of-code beer, and I'd really like to move it. Would you be interested in buying it? And it was six packs of 750 ml bottles of that beer, Bellevue Selection Lambique, and Cantillon's. He had Cantillon uh, Creek, Rose de Gambrinus, and the Gurza, or Goose, and he had six packs of 750s. And he wanted $12 per six pack. So $2 a bottle. And at the time, Mike, my buddy at High Times, was selling bottles of Cantillon. It wasn't expensive as it is now, but he was selling bottles for like $8.99, $10.99, $12.99. And to his credit, he bought, he goes, how much do you have? And he goes, I got 60 cases of each of those and 20 cases of the Bellevue Selection Lambie. And to his credit, he bought a third of them 
and then took the other more expensive stuff off the shelf and sold them for $5 a bottle, which was really cool. I thought he did, but he couldn't take them all. And so he's like, Doc, you uh, you want any of these? And I go, oh. I'm driving this little Ford Taurus, which if you don't know what that is, it's a little two-door compact car. And I'm like, <laughs> I want 25 cases of each. And I'll take all the Bellevue Selection Lambique if you don't have it. Because, I mean, when else are you going to get when else are you going to get Cantillon for even in, even yeah. in Cantillon, you can't get it for back then. You couldn't get it for $2 a bottle for seven fifty. So I had all these amazing bottles. And so long story short, I, I've gone through all those. I've shared them all, but that's the last holdout of all these amazing 96 and 98 batches that I had. Yeah. So um, I'm going to do this. I don't know if it's going to work or not, but I'm not going to spend too much time. There's a bunch of Dodole still knocked reserva things. There's beer fridge, beer fridge, beer fridge going around. Uh, this, is, this is more infrastructure than I've had in some venues that I've run. I've got to tell you. Bottles on the table. I guess you can't really see them too well, but uh, yeah, just this beer fridge alone has uh, 1,200 bottles in it. It's, so um, nobody's allowed in your office apparently, yeah? What? Nobody's allowed in your office, it seems, because all that beer's still there. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. They, I have, I invite, I'm, I'm like, I invite, I practically invite people off the street. I literally do. That's just how I am, because <laughs> I have it. And so I'm like, I'll meet people at a beer festival and stuff, and they'll be like, "Can we get a picture with you?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And I go, "You know, we're going over to my house afterwards. Do you guys live around here?" If you want to come over to the party, and that's how I've made a lot of friends, and I've converted tens of thousands of people, I feel, over the decades into beer from my talks and things. But yeah, everybody's very polite. I just say, look, ask. You can get anything. There's a few beers that I'm not going to open, but just ask me first. And I go, but here's six kegs on my kegerator of all these amazing beers, and here's all these bottles in these five coolers that are out there. So Go through those first, and then when you come and do, you know, you go to the shrine. They call it the cellar, right? There's actually an untapped location for my house, which is called the cellar. Uh, and they they come through here and look, and they're just, like, standing there. And I'm like, okay, what would you like to open? And then, we, like I said, we all segue back here. And I, I usually open whatever they ask for. But, um, yeah, I've been really lucky. I haven't – usually what I find is I find two things. I find – Bottles that I didn't have before that have been left here, like somebody's brought some from the part into the party because it's a bottle share. And then they go, oh, I'm going to leave these in Dr. Biller's cellar because he was so generous. Or I'll, I'll get some rascal who will like leave Kerr's Light Tall Boys stashed behind my Lambics or something like that. And I'll be like, oh, thanks, buddy. <laughs> That's I like that kind of thing. When I used to have a kitchen in a bar that I had before, there used to be one half bottle of Southern Comfort that would go from the kitchen to the front of house and back and forth because no one ever wanted to drink it. But we wanted to make it look like the other half of the team was drinking it. So you know, oh sure, just a just a little. Yeah, I've yeah, heard of stuff like that. Just a little sort of shout out to those people. Um, James Murphy, would you like to unmute yourself and ask your question, my friend? Gladly. Thank you, David. And thanks, Bill. It's been great hearing about your ethos and your journey. Um, and I, for one, know that um, 
when I'm in San Diego, I'm going to hunt you down. I love okay. San Diego. It's one of my favorite places on earth. Well, come and to the brewery. The beer scene's amazing, and I'm going to come and see you. But I, what I wanted to ask was um, if you have any plans for collaborations. So, I have friends from all over, all, all over, literally all over the world, and, and people that I had thought when I opened the brewery, I'm going to do collaborations with this Belgian producer and this is East Coast. And Jay Wakefield is a friend of mine, uh, Jonathan Wakefield down in Florida, who does some great beers and all these places. And we've got a couple collaborations, <coughs> but I just really haven't because really, to be honest, and this sounds wrong, I want to do collaborations with great breweries, which is fine. There's plenty that want to do it, but their question is always, so I have three other partners, right? One is our CFO and he's a cigar guy, but he, he kind of came new into the wine and he's kind of our financial guy. And then I have uh, Preston, who's our barrel master, who helped make Cascade Brewing famous up in Portland, Oregon with his barrels. And then I have a brewer who was a home brewer for a long time uh, named Bill also. And as I've gotten older and heavier and had more health issues, a lot of people have been like, yeah, we'd love to do a, we'd love for you to come out to New York and do a, a collaboration uh, with our brewery. And I'm like, this is really cool. And I'm like, yeah, but it won't be me. It'll be my brewer. And they're like, no, we want to party with you. And so I literally get that answer a lot where it's like, well, maybe we'll come out there and do it. But then the pandemic happened through, you know, we've only been open just under five years and two of those years were the pandemic. Right. So I think we'll be doing some collaborations, but just my health hasn't allowed me to, you know, travel to New York because what happens is it's not that I'm going to go stay in a hotel, get up, go and do the collaboration and then leave. It's going to be four days of me partying with them all hours of the night. And then, you know, making it back home in one piece. You should do that in Australia, Bill. I know. I've been invited so many times and I know it'd be a, such an amazing, amazing trip. And I'd love to go out there. I got to, I just got to get my health back in order. A couple of years ago, I had a heart attack and I'm doing much better, but I, I have some health issues. Believe it or not, I used to be, I, I, I used to look like Mark's picture. I was a surfer. I was a, a you know, skateboarder, mountain climber, hang glide, jumped out of airplanes, did all that stuff. But that comes with a price. You break a lot of bones and do things. And now that I'm so big, cause I'm, I'm way overweight. I, I, it's hard for me to exercise and I need to get knee replacements and stuff. Sorry. I'm just being honest. I need to get like knee replacements and stuff. And I, until I get, you know, my lifestyle, it's hard. I'm constant battle to be losing weight. Or do I want to go to that 17 course Fragois dinner <laughs> with the first growth Bordeaux that I'm invited to that's a thousand dollars a plate, but they're comping me, right? So it's one of those things. Uh, maybe I'll eat canned tuna for a week and then do that. But you know, it's one of those things. So it, it's 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 a constant battle at this point. Literally, I've had forty plus years of just parting my at like a rock star, and it's caught up. <laughs> can, can I say, like, and I mean, this is a compliment. It also sounds like you have a very clear idea of what doing a collaboration would mean for your brewery 
And it's more than just sending an email through with some ingredients or we've had a number of breweries on. In fact, we, we remarked a couple of times, we once had a Danish brewery, an Australian brewery who had done a collab where they'd essentially brewed the same beer, but with some different native ingredients from both countries. And we had them both on the podcast at the same time. Everyone in Australia had those beers in front of them, yet both breweries had never tasted the other beer and had no idea what they were making. So it sounds like a collaboration means something important to you and, and to the brewery. It does. I want, we want it to be value added. There are literally breweries, two I can think of in Southern California that have been open less than five years that have done 150 collaborations each. And it's like, but are you guys even putting any forethought of it? And now a lot of them, to be honest, are, there's a lot of collaborations going on around the country where it's the cool kid group, right? All the, like I used to be called the kid when I'd show up at Anchor Brewing and pour beers for Fritz Maytag and Ken Grossman when I was 20 years old and they going, who's this guy? Oh, wait, he's got some pretty crazy beers here. Let's let him, let's let him come into the office and pour beer with us. But there's a lot, there's this cool kid club, right? Where it's all the young brewers and uh, they, they go out and uh, just constantly are doing collaborations. Uh, I want to do one, to be honest, with Alpine Brewing, which is now called Michelinie Brewing, which is what I consider him one of the finest IPA uh, producers in the history of American craft beer. So I, I, I've been trying to set that up and we're, we're both on board, but it's just because of the pandemic. So I think we'll, uh, final, final answer is I think we'll do some, but I want it to be, I want them to mean something and I want there to be value added for both breweries. A great answer. A bit like the very beginning where you said that, you know, beers that aren't good shouldn't be put out, shouldn't be renamed as a something else. Uh, it's important to have that, uh, that level of quality control and that ethos to begin with. Right. We have done four or five clubs. We've done one with Virgin. We've done one with Stone Brewing. Virgin's another hot, cool brewery in San Diego. Next time you're there, James, if you haven't already been there. <coughs> um. I feel like we've done three so far. Uh, I, I know I'm, I, oh, we've done one with the place called Burning Barrel up in Sacramento, who does kind of the same styles of sours we're doing. So we've done a few, but yeah, I'd like to do a few more. Now we're going to get Jacob Jackson to unmute, but I'm very conscious of the fact that Jacob is right now in Melbourne's beautiful Queen Victoria market, one of the top tourist attractions uh, in Melbourne working at now pink pig am i right in saying jacob i'm gonna make sure that i'm doing my plug here right socks yes fire away with your question your audio is okay at the moment it's okay okay yeah tap me out if you think it's too bad because i'm mindful this is a podcast and you actually do want to get the audio right so uh but yeah uh bill thank you so much for your time it's been very interesting um and i was just wondering like with your beers and i'm seriously just these are the first three i've ever tried in my life um, one one underlying Thank you. Uh, commonality was they're they're sweet and and that's not a bad thing. I've enjoyed them quite a bit, but I'm wondering is that a deliberate style sort of thing? You guys like to have a bit of sweetness in your beers, you know, regardless of the you know particular style. Is it lactose based or is it just those three I've had perhaps? So it's a it's a millennial thing, right? I'm blaming the millennials. Um, they they like that. They like sweeter. They like more aggressive flavor. 
look, I like a great barrel aged stout that has bourbon notes and, and, and things like that. They want pastry stouts. That's what sells currently. Our vices um, are fruit forward. And like I said, our base beer is very sour, but because we fruit post fermentation, you get the whole thing of the fruit. So it's literally like having almost a fruit juice, right? I mean, there's a good acidity to it, but you definitely pick up the fruit. So those are the two examples we had today, besides the Cosmic Zen, which is a hazy, which is also softer and sweeter than our West Coast IPAs are like that. I'm more of a, like, I'm Dr. Bill, right? So I have a Desert Island six-pack, not a Desert Island beer. And my (laughs) Desert Island six-pack is Sierra Nevada Celebration, which I consider one of the first uh, American IPAs ever produced. I have um, uh, uh, Bell's, uh, why am I doing a brain fade? Hold on. Bell's Expedition Stout, which is one of the finest Imperial Stouts ever made. I have Cantillon St. Lemvinus, which is a Bordeaux grape uh, aged uh, Lambique. That, that's amazing. Ankschlenkera uh, Rauch beer, because I love smoked beers. Um, who am I forgetting? Oh, Dupont Avec Le Bon Vu, which is the New Year's Eve version of Dupont Saison. That's nine and a half percent. And then my favorite beer. beer of all time, Orval. For Tanamias's Trappist Ale, 6.9% with uh, noble hops, dry hopped in it. And it gets just funkier. I have like 20 years worth of Orval here. Um, those are my beers, but we're brewing for the millennials, right? We're brewing for what I know moves. The, the, it's, sorry, it's a dad joke, but the nickname for Saisons in America right now are Saisons because you can't sell them because they don't, I mean, they're, don't get me wrong. There's little producers that are making these rare bottles that have a following that are, have very high ratings on a tap. Then they move every, every hundred case production of, uh, say that they make, uh, the, the, the gentleman in Vermont, which I can't think of his name, uh, Hill Farmstead, uh, legendary producer, his say are all amazing. And they, they move. I still, I've done some of the largest Danny Prignon Fantone tastings in America where I've done 80 different Fantomes in one sitting. And I have a bunch of Fantome Saisons, uh, but I just can't validate as a brewery that's still trying to has investors to say, we're going to make this smoked uh, white oak beer that only 1% of our guests are going to enjoy right now and make 15 barrels of it. Right. So uh, we want to do that. Uh, We just, we haven't gotten a, we've grown and we haven't gotten a little pilot system, which I'd like to do and be able to do that. And then uh, Jacob, I saw your other questions about the cigars. Uh, No offense taken. Um, Sorry. Sounds cocky once again, but I guess, that's old hat now after talking to me for a couple hours. Um, I've considered my one another nickname I used to have was the palate. Back when there were not 10,000 new beers being produced in America every year, I used to go to these barley wine, t- t- these festivals and stuff at place at these famous beer bars. And they would literally take all 
38 barley wines and have me guess what they were because I'd had all of them and they'd put the number on the bottom and I'd taste them, including a four-year vertical of Bigfoot from Sierra Nevada. And I'd get like all of them right, but two. And I'd say, well, I haven't had these two before because I have the memory of retention. So cigars, I totally understand it. You're smoking a cigar, blow out your palate, drink too much, 12 hours worth of beer, blow out your palate. I've just always had this really great, and I'm scared to death that I'm going to be 60 and they, you know, I'm, I'm afraid that my senses are going to dull, but they haven't. So I'm knocking on wood right now. Um, I've always been able to have this great palate where I can pick up things. And so I drink and I smoke and I do things. And then I go the next day and judge beer and my palate is still good. I used to drive, there's a, a pretty famous, uh, not famous, but a pretty well-respected beer judging thing for different types of artisanal foods in San Francisco that was started by Martha Waters, who's this legendary chef that kind of started the uh, kind of the slow food movement in California and, and did artisanal food. And I would show up there after going to my favorite beer bar, the Toronado in San Francisco and drinking beer all night and then going to a place called Tommy's, which is a Yucatan Mexican place with a legendary tequila sommelier and mm. drinking all these rare tequilas and putting them in margaritas and then going up on his roof and smoking a couple cigars till three o'clock in the morning. And I'd get up in the morning to go judge to cup coffee at this artisanal thing and then do cheese and then do beer. And the people next to me would be like, how can you judge anything? You smell like cigars. I'm like, okay, well, we talked and is, am I saying anything wrong? Am I saying anything you disagreed with? So I've just always had that ability. It's not for everybody. It becomes more of a hedonistic thing where you, you can just enjoy the cigar and the whiskey and the beer. And maybe you're not picking up the nuances now because you're smoking a cigar, right? And there's clouds, but <laughs> for people who enjoy those kind of over the top things, it's a, it's a fun time, right? Um, but yeah, there would definitely be brewer friends of mine from some of the most respected, famous people you, you know, that would be like, they accept me for who I am, but they'd be like, uh, it's, it's Dr. Bill again, just, you know, <laughs> out doing it, but I'm still invited to the final table at judging time. So I don't know, but yeah, no, it could be overwhelming for sure. Cigar smoke can definitely be overwhelming. I've got to say that when you were talking before about the bon ver as a say a, a stays on, I totally understand. Um, I'm not even sure whether you know what lawn bowls is as a game, but I used to be a manager of a lawn bowls club, so very ultra traditional, fizzy yellow beer as you would describe it. In fact, nothing but when I first got there, and I bought a case or two of that, and I got to drink it all by myself over a period of time because no one ever bought it. But the um, the reason I raise that is because out of Two of your top six are breweries that we're in negotiation at the moment to have on the podcast in future months. So uh, no promises, but I love to drop out little hints like that as we go along. Nice. Um, I'm going to ask a really strange question in the sense of we've now tasted three of your beers officially, but for those of us that are now going, well, I need to open another beer, what's your approach to when you've just had a big stout uh, with all of the kind of rich, gorgeous flavours like we've been enjoying uh, in the hipster sweet dreams. 
do you think you've sort of got to keep drinking stout for the rest of the day or can you reset your palate and how would you do that if you were at a, at a major tasting or at a judging panel, for instance? Well, water definitely helps for sure. And this is, I haven't really been sipping it, but I'm a big proponent of drinking water with your, with whatever beverages you're trying, because it's just good for you. And it, and it refreshes your palate. Um, sour beers can definitely hold up for this. Like I probably, I, I had no problem with the order we did today, but I probably would have done the hazy first because of the fact that the sour was pretty aggressive in flavor profile. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can definitely go back to sours and from sours you can, you know, sometimes you have to just have a, and this is history in the making because I have not drank from a can in 25 years. Oh my word. I'm going to reset my palate with the crispy boys right now, just for you guys. And so that's a good palate resetter. And once you, do that if you do a lighter lager or something like that you can go into anywhere anywhere you want to go you can go to a rauk beer a saison an ipa uh you name it and the only reason why i don't drink out of a can or a bottle is because i want those aromatics and everything right it's only because i've enjoyed this beer so many times i'm willing to do it one of my most famous quotes is anything good enough to drink is good enough to sip and we're talking about a guy that 35 years ago was doing shots just like everybody else and doing stupid stuff. Right. And I once had the last time I ever did anything really crazy was I I had a bomber of stone, which is 22 ounces of stone Imperial Russian stout right after they opened uh, in in like, I want to say it was 98 and somebody bet me I couldn't drink it out of the bottle in 20 seconds. And I did. So I did that. And then I go, oh, that's just stupid. I didn't even enjoy it. So I opened another one and we shared it in glasses, but yeah, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm the kind of guy. If you haven't guessed already who goes camping and I'm not talking about what's the term glamping or whatever. I don't do that, but I go camping but when I bring the cooler with all the rare beer in it, I have a black little bag that's a Riddell bag, and I pull out four Belgian beer glasses out of that bag, and I pass them out to whoever wants them, and I open the bottles, and I drink out of a Belgian glass while I'm sitting in my beach chair down at the lake, you know, doing that kind of thing. So I just believe it's, if it's a great beer and you can, you can do it. But, you know, sometimes you need a drink and you don't have a glass with you. So I totally get it. But yeah, so the reason why I did that whole thing was not to be pompous, but to say, reset your palate with water, but also a beer, anything with flavor. You could do it with a soda, believe it or not. You can do it with this. I wouldn't do like a fruit juice, anything acidic, but you could take a soda um, and go ahead and reset your palate, something with carbonation, because carbonation is scrubbing bubbles, right? Whether it's in beer or sparkling wine, um, you can do scrubbing bubbles. I used to do this competition called beer versus wine and travel all over to these wine regions. And we do a six course dinner and I, I select the beers and a sommelier would check six, select the wines. And I think I was 32 and two and all that time because beer just has things going for it. It has carbonation scrubbing bubbles it has bitterness which cleanses your palate 
and accentuates mm-hmm. heat. It has sweetness if you pick a sweeter beer to modify the heat. Uh, it, it has roasted grains, which is like the Maillard reaction, fancy chef term for the non-enzymatic browning of meats and breads. So when you're baking bread at home and all of a sudden it smells good, that's because it's browning. Or sorry if there's any vegans out there, you stick a big slap of meat on the barbecue and it starts to sear. That's mm. the Maillard reaction. And so a, that's why a brown ale or a black beer works so well with those things. And, and uh, you know, it's just enjoyable that way. So, yeah, you can reset your palate with a, a lager or something else like that and, and just go right in there. Fantastic answer. I'm really conscious that we're coming up to midnight your time and you've been incredibly mm. generous with your time. We're only about halfway through the questions we anticipated asking, but um, we don't want to keep you up. So, well, let me ask you a question. So that might have been a kind way for him to get rid of me, guys, just so you're all aware of that. Quite the opposite. We wanted to get and I know there's that. value in a podcast for only being a certain window of time, too. So I don't want it to be this unwatchable or unlistenable thing where it's like, oh, my God, this thing's so frigging long. I don't even want to click on yeah, it. We'll, we'll, but we'll that being said, what's, what's your record for a podcast? I think Sierra Nevada was probably four, four and a half hours. And we didn't put out the last hour and a half, which was less comprehensible than the first four and a half hours. I bet. So uh, feel free. I'm not going to die of I'm not going to die of thirst. I can tell you that much right now. <laughs> uh, we can go through the questions. Is all I'm saying. I'm fine. I I I I'm old. I'm one of those old people that sleeps like four hours a night. So well, if I go to bed at one, I'll get up at five. It doesn't matter. I think. I think the one the one that I really want to ask is so the brewery appears like it's it's getting bigger and stronger and going from streak to streak. What are the next big plans? Can you reveal any of those? Of them? Things yeah, always shift, right? Think like mm-hmm. I said, I, I thought we'd have done saisons and all kinds of stuff, right? Mm. And uh, things always shift by what the market will bear and do. I originally thought I would have a cool ship already. That a mobile cool ship where we would go out into the vineyards, which are close by us, and, mm. and we'd be doing wild yeast strains. My my barrel guy who has about, my partner, Preston, who has probably about 150 barrels right now, is like, no, we can't do that. I, I got to manage these and the temperature. He's from Portland, right, which is a lot cooler climate mm. than San Diego. He's like, I am already having issues with the beer because we don't have it temperature controlled for the barrels. So I thought there was going to be stuff like that. Um, I hate to say it because I'm almost embarrassed. We're going to be doing smoothie beers and we're going to be doing smoothie beers because even though the vice are always going to have staying power and we're going to continue to turn out new vices, we have one coming out that's new called Peach Pineapple, which will be really exciting we just came out with a new one last week mango passion um one of the early questions i'll segue into your question warren was that was on the list was um how do you guys come up with the flavors well originally Mm. the the head brewer bill and i we sat down and tried a bunch of different fruits and and did these different combinations and 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 it was pretty logical where we were going with it. We were knew we wanted to do a strawberry. We knew we wanted to do a cherry, and we wanted to do the sour cherry with the stone pits, right? We knew we wanted to do cassis. Uh, but then we started trying different combinations of fruit samples and said, 
wow, papaya and mulberry work. Huckleberry and Tahitian lime work. And so we started coming up with all these crazy combinations mm-hmm. and, and doing that. So we're, we're constantly doing that. And even though the vices maintain are, are kind of our, what everybody orders when they're ordering quantity, mm-hmm. um, there are a lot of people out there making smoothie beers and we know we can make them with our history of, with all this fruit that we use already and, and how well they taste. We know we can make really good smoothie beers. So we're going to be making smoothie beers for as long as that cycle lasts. I don't foresee there being smoothie beers being as popular two years from now, but we're going to continue to do those. Um, we're going to start brewing a few more lagers. We really do a good job. I'm hoping I can get Peter to, to send you guys out some, uh, uh, to, to get some crispy boys. So get it out there. So you guys can try our, our version of a really good German mm. pills. Um, and we've done our cerveza now, which literally, this is how I roll. I named our Mexican pale lager cerveza, right? Which is <laughs> Spanish for beer. So I did that because I go, that's what it basically is. It's a corn-based uh, four, four and a half percent lager. And I was really pissed at all the breweries around town because they're all making this pale Corona, excuse me, Corona Pacifico Tecate style lager. And I go, don't you guys know the history of Mexico? Mexico was founded by the brewing system was founded by Austrian brewers who brought the Vienna lager there. And the Vienna lager is the Marzen is what is a Mexican lager. It's all about that. And that's why there's Noche Bueno and there's Negro Modelo and all these styles that were there. It wasn't until the macro breweries took over and they started making fizzy yellow versions of Mexican lager with lime put in there. Right. And so I got pissy and they go, well, yeah, but that's what everybody wants. So I go, all right, we're just going to name it Cerveza then and be straight up. <laughs> and uh, we're actually doing a Oktoberfest beer uh, coming up here uh, that we're going to uh, be doing. And it's going to be a traditional Oktoberfest beer, which is a uh, Vienna lager, not the ones that they're doing at Oktoberfest now because people get too drunk. So it'll be a Vienna lager instead of a pale Hellas beer. So that's coming up. But uh, otherwise, I have a lot of stuff I want to do, but none of it's uh, none of it's been come to fruition yet. So we'll see, Warren. That's oh, we're going to open another tasting room. I think we're going to open another tasting room in Orange County, which is another big hotbed. The goal, the original business model. Anybody who's opening a brewery, I'm going to give them free advice. You want to follow what's called the 80-20 rule, which we are actually flipped it all the way over the other way and we're 2080 because of the pandemic as a brewery you want to sell your own beer that's just mm-hmm. the rule so of what you produce you want to have 80 percent of it poured in your tasting room here's why you make a keg a half barrel of beer and it costs you a hundred dollars so a barrel of beer might cost you two hundred dollars you can sell it to an account for a couple hundred dollars and make a hundred percent profit or you can take those 248 pints that come out of a barrel of beer and sell them for $7 a pint in your own tasting room and make $1,000 per barrel versus $150 per barrel. So you want to do that. So our original goal was to open four or five tasting rooms 
and have very limited distribution. And really, before we had any California distributors, who we have four now, and before we had any out-of-state distributors, we have five, we were selling beer overseas to Japan, Western Australia, Thailand, Vietnam. That was my thing. I go, you guys want to sell beer? Let's sell it to other countries. Let's sell it to the people who come and say they want our beer in their country and do that. And the rest will just open tasting rooms. We only have two tasting rooms right now. We have the mothership and then we have one in a place called Temecula, which is about 30 miles away uh, from us. And I'd like to have five of them. So I'm hoping we can open a couple tasting rooms coming up. And I think we found a spot in Orange County. So hopefully you'll see something on our Instagram feed in the next couple of weeks that we're going to open a place. Right. That's that's an aggressive, and I don't mean that in a bad way, but a really aggressive sort of, you know, vision for a company that's been around for four or five years. Do you feel like you need to get a certain amount of scale quickly? Is that something you've seen happen to other breweries, you know, around the place? As far as opening tasting rooms, David? Or that you that it's important to get to a certain scale quickly mm. enough that you don't end up being bought out or that the business just can't make enough money to, to function, particularly making high-end beers like you are. Right. Well, with the pandemic, it was fairly brutal because we weren't allowed to have customers come into our tasting rooms, which, you know, tonight I was looking at our, <coughs> we have cameras there, so big brothers watching, right? I was looking at the cameras, the tasting room, and we had 220 people just in our tasting room tonight, which was awesome. Mm. Uh but during the pandemic, we had nobody in our tasting room. So that's why we went to more distribution and started packaging more and more beer, a higher percentage of our beer from draft to, to cases. So um, a lot of people ramp up and become these regional breweries, but these regional breweries are getting bit now. Even, excuse me, even places like Stone, you guys probably heard what happened to Green Flash if you read Beer News. You know, they expanded and expanded, went in a lot of debt. You want to minimize your debt load and you want to not grow too fast because then it becomes the snake chasing its tail and kind of consuming itself because what happens is newer products come on the market if you're not if you're not very nimble so you can follow and change with the trends. As a smaller brewery, what happens is you start uh, losing market share and as you're losing market share, you now have this huge investment of, you know, we're a 10,000 square foot tasting room and brewery. There's places like a stone that has hundreds thousand square foot, four different facilities, right? Places all the way on the East coast. And here they had Berlin, they had a place in China, you know, those places. So you have to be able to, and, and Greg's a very smart guy, Greg Cook, the owner, um, he's a, a good friend of mine and he had it well thought out and he just, all he wanted to do was not to become the richest person in the world. Cause they were already very well off at stone. He wanted to spread the gospel of craft beer everywhere and have fresh beer. And, you know, one of the things that was his founding drive for that whole thing of opening up in Europe, because they were already selling beer to Europe, but he just wanted less carbon footprint and he wanted to have beer that was made there of the beer so he could share that the funny story is it's all because of australia i think i think it's all because of australia because there was a guy that illegally 
import took brought over a few pallets of stone IPA back in like 98 or 99. And what happened, he was over here visiting or over there visiting, excuse me. And he found IPA that was like nine months old on a shelf of a store Mm -hmm. that he was brought into. And he was very upset about that. He was like, I just want to be fresh. I just want them. That's why they did their whole enjoy by series. I don't know if you know that, Uh, but the enjoy by series is a beer. That's delicious for 90 days. But after 35 days, they pull it off the shelves. Literally it's, Mm -hmm. it's a pretty amazing and costly process that they were doing when they created that a few years ago, back in 2015, but he wanted to do that. And it's all because he wanted to share that, but now because of the pandemics and everything, it's hurt him and it's hurt a lot of these larger breweries and they're being bought up. So uh, we see a lot less stone now than we used to, but there were certainly times that we would be getting stone beers that were either out of date or poorly shipped. In fact, they were, they were notably some of the worst US beers in the condition that they would arrive in. Sure. And he wanted to, that's why he opened up in Berlin, not to convert, look, Germany has the cheapest beer in the world. Good quality beer for what they make, but it's it's part of their heritage that they only charge like a dollar and a half for, for a beer, right? That's what they do because, and they all feel that this is what their tradition is. He wasn't doing the Berlin facility for that. He wanted a hub where they could produce fresh beer for all the countries that were buying his beer already, like Italy and the northern Denmark and places like that. Now, that being said, he got a little out of control with the giant world bistro there that he took over that cost, I don't know how many millions and millions and millions of dollars to do, because that's Greg and that's what he likes to do. But I can guarantee you that if that was still going strong and China was still going strong, and I'm speaking on my opinion, not whether Greg was going to do it. I really feel there would be a stone in New Zealand or Australia right now because he'd want you guys to have the beer, but he'd want it to be fresh, right? Mm, so um, that would be his plan to do that. I've got maybe one last question to, to take us out on. It might be a longish answer, but um, you've shared what, so me? much of your... No. <laughs> you've shared so much knowledge and so much expertise today. Uh, and we've barely touched on half of your life experiences. But can I ask where and how you got your knowledge and how you think people who are coming into craft beer, you know, should get that same level of knowledge or even about food when you're using those scientific terms to describe, you know, the cooking processes or the flavours that you're experiencing, how much of it is just being in the industry for 40 years, how much is more formal study and for podcast listeners out there around the world, you know, where do they get this knowledge? So there's no better time than now because of the internet, right? And podcasts and, and blogs and things like that. Uh, you have to, you have to remember, I was never in officially, I consulted and helped out with consulting and stuff for a couple of decades, but officially my first job in the beer industry was 2009 when I retired from the medical field, but I was the grandfather of beer geeks. I was the hobbyist, the ultimate connoisseur, right? I used to call myself a, 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 a Burgundian because Burgundian's a term for somebody who likes the finest things in life in large quantities. Another term would be a gourmand, but I always liked Burgundian more. And 
Um, so for me, it, I was a voracious reader and I just made it a thing. Just like I said, I tasted rocks and wood and all kinds of things and was never afraid of any food item to try and always thinking. I mean, you'll catch me still today. I'll be somewhere and I'll be sitting there with a glass of water and I'll be doing this and they'll be going, what are you doing? And I'm going, oh, sorry, it's just habit. I'm just swirling my water. Um, but so what I would tell them is there are so much knowledge based off the internet. I could tell you, we could do a whole nother podcast on just Michael Jackson stories, right? And a lot of those were true and a lot of those weren't because he was going off historical things and his own life experiences. And he was, he was a great storyteller. And um, now you have the internet. You have people like Ron Pattinson in Europe, who, who's a true beer historian, who de- literally devotes time as a writer to write these long articles about things. But find podcasts like yours, find blogs, find books. I have in my, my wife is a sweetheart, right? She, she's sweetest little thing. She, she's very petite. Um, she loves IPAs. That's why I can have all this. She hates all these beers, but I can't keep IPAs in my refrigerator. I had to take them off kegs off my kegerator because she'd be drinking IPAs all the time. But in my house, it's like uh, you walk in, there's big Duval pictures that are five feet by eight feet hanging on the walls. There's a bookshelf cabinet with over 300 books on beer, wine, cheese, whiskey, cigars, just there. You walk past our kitchen into our family room. There's a big pool table. There's our dining room table. There's 300 Belgian glasses around the ceiling up on a, up on this uh, ledge that goes around there. There's a humidor that's as big as a closet door that's filled with cigars. There's a side table with all my cigar stuff. There's a cocktail cart that's oversized. And then there's the thing that you would put on the back of your bed if you had a big shelving unit going off the back of your bed, like a break front that is filled with 150 bourbons, uh, 100 tequilas and mezcals, da-da-da-da-da, going down, you know, 500 bottles. I have my scotches in a separate area. And then half the garage is taken over with this. The outside patio has a big kegerator and there's <laughs> TVs for sports in every room, including ridiculously big 65, 70 inch TVs. My wife has the other side of the garage, which you guys can't see, which has her washer and dryers and her tools and things like that. Cause she loves to garden. And so she's just an angel. So she just allowed me to have all this space. When people come over, they're very jealous. Good wives. Are good I read all- yes, they are. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I've read all those books front to cover. Like I've read Michael Jackson's books, a half dozen times. Uh, YouTube's great. Um, you guys are on Facebook uh, live, I think. Right. Um, but YouTube's great. You can Google any, I mean, you could not Google, I guess you could YouTube anything and, and just see like, I love bourbon. So there are like a hundred different bourbon podcasts on there. And there's new content coming out all the time. There's a lot of beer content. Some of it's frustrating because it's like, no, there's no, you know, I'll I'll see these reviews of our beers and it'll be like, and this has Madagascar bourbon vanilla beans and 
That's why I'm getting the bourbon out of this because, you know, they obviously had it in bourbon barrels while it was traveling from Madagascar to the United States for these vanilla beans. And I'm like, no, that's just, that's just the name of the region in Madagascar. Right. And so, you know, there's a lot of bad content on there, but there's a lot of good content and you can Google anything in the world. You can look up cold IPAs. If somebody doesn't know what a cold IPA is and somebody's written an article on it. So I really think it's about doing that, taking classes. There's a lot of colleges out there now. There's a lot of online things. Like I said, uh, I've been, I was on the original advisory board for San Diego State University when they did the business of craft beer. We've had 2,700 students go through in the last seven years. It's kind of a night school thing, kind of like an adult continuing education I mean, why not? You can drink beer while you're going to class, right? And then I teach an entry-level course, and I teach. So you get to listen to me do this, this kind of talk for six consecutive weeks. And then the beer and food pairing course, but we have beer styles. We have stuff for industry people who want to know about building a business plan or draft systems and things like that. There's so much information out there that you can get. Um, you just have to Follow up with your sources and make sure what they're saying. Look, I'm very opinionated, obviously, um, but you got to make sure that the stuff they're imparting is actually real and true, right? On top of that, and they know what they're talking about. But there's a lot of good information out there. So, I mean, it's there. And people can always, uh, you can give my email out to people. If people have questions, I'm more than happy to answer. I've always been that way. I'm always willing to help and, and do whatever to to expand the craft beer community. Well, you've you've shown that today just in the generosity of mm. your time. Uh, it's been not just an honor, but an education for all of us. And I've got to say, when you make offers like, you know, we should do a podcast just with Michael Jackson stories, you know what? We might be in contact and take you up on that one because you're a great storyteller. And by golly, that'd be an episode that people should hear. Look, I, this is easy for me, right? I'm 45 feet from my bed. I have to go up a set of stairs and that's it, right? Um, it, you know, this is easy for me. It's when I used to travel 3,000 miles and sit and do a talk and spend five days there. That's the stuff that's harder. But doing stuff on Zoom or, or you know, phone calls or, or whatever, that, that's, that's easy stuff for me. So I'm more than happy to uh, support your podcast and be on as many times as you'll have me. Mate, that's truly wonderful. We're going to take you up on that offer. Can I say, aside from everything else you've achieved, congratulations on Wild Barrel. The beers Mm, are amazing and there's so much maturity uh, of thought and design that's going into what is still a very young, fresh brewery. Uh, We've heard right throughout today, Australians who are just hanging out to get back over to San Diego and who are very keen to get to your brewery. And we want to see our friends from Forward Hops, who are the importers in Australia, bring more and more of your beers into the country. Um, Bill, thank you for your time. Thanks, Bill. Cheers, everybody. Pleasure meeting you. Uh, Stay in touch, please. Have a great night.